Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 63, Charles Taylor, the Beauty Queen. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Pad when we pad. Win little misintensive care when we win little misintensive care. And today I'll be talking about Season 4, Episode 4, Lisa the Beauty Queen, which first aired on October the 15th, 1992. And this week, I'm in Liberia, because on October the 15th, 1992, the very same day Lisa the Beauty Queen first aired, the warlord and politician Charles Taylor launched Operation Octopus, an attack on the capital Monrovia, as part of the First Liberian Civil War. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. We received several tweets in the last couple of weeks, largely pointing us towards a, an interview that purported to be with John Schwartzwelder. I've got to say, we both read it. Uh, I came away from it thinking, yes, it was a very, a very entertaining read with some very interesting advice uh, on how to write comedy and, and, and a little bit of advice for life in general. What did you think, Tom? I like the story where he confirmed that he did take a booth from a local restaurant and had it installed in his house. But it wasn't because he wanted to smoke while he worked. It was just because he found working in a restaurant booth a lot easier than in any other situation. In fact, he liked it so much, he had a second booth installed in his house. So, yeah, it was a good interview, but there's nothing in it that suggests that he's a real person. No, could could still have been somebody playing the character. So, um, but nice try, John. But, um, yeah, you're not fooling us. <laughs> So anyway, back to October the 15th, 1992. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one that week? Well, it was Sleeping Satellite, and the top five is packed out with songs we've either discussed previously or will be discussing in the future. Because of this, I'm playing my creative control card for this episode and looking at not one, but two tracks of interest in the top ten. Which leads me first down to number nine this week. And who are these young, fresh fellows that we find there? Sadly, not the young, fresh fellows. That would have been quite a turn up for the books. No, what we have instead are Take That with the A Million Love Songs EP, Tax Avoision Enthusiast Gary Barlow, Unconvincing Swing Singer Robbie Walliams, and the other two formed in Manchester in 1990-ish, brought together by Svengali Nigel Martin-Smith and patterned after new kids on the block, who we discussed way back in one of our very, very first episodes, but I've forgotten which one. Built around Barlow's songwriting talents, the rest were selected as eye candy, and the band were originally called Kick It, before taking their more Alan Partridge-esque moniker. Melding high-energy, gay disco-friendly tunes with the odd mum-baiting contemporary ballad, and this song falls squarely into the latter camp, the group succeeded in all kinds of demographics where their American predecessors had mainly just cleaned up in the team market. The stage was set for a spectacularly successful career as a boy band before Robbie Williams left the band and ruined everything. Game over, career over. 
But then, inexplicably, they returned as a man band about ten years after originally splitting, peddling some of the most low-NRG, boring, sub-Coldplay tunes possible in their comeback to dominate the UK music scene once again, largely through the power of nostalgia. And with the success came the money once again. Tax-free in Barlow's case. Joking aside, I'll come out and say it. This isn't actually a bad song at all. Albeit, much like Tasman Archer's offering last time out, not something I'm interested in personally. Also worth noting for the maybe two of our listeners who will find this interesting and or funny, that the single was co-produced by one of the alleged originators of the high-NRG dance sound, Doctor Who supervan Ian Levine, about whom Barlow was incredibly savage in his autobiography. We'll almost certainly visit with Take That again, but just for a bit of context here, I wanted to mention another song in the top ten for beating these soon-to-be leviathans of the UK pop music charts up at number six is Dr. Spin with Tetris. (laughs) The song that underpins this is known in-game as Type A and is the default tune that plays throughout, except a game over when entering your name on the high score table. It could be changed to Type B or Type C, but why would you want to do that? Type A itself is based on, and I will get this wrong, Korobaniki, or The Peddlers, a 19th century Russian folk song based on a poem by Nikolai Nekrasov. And Dr. Spin, you ask? It was Andrew Lloyd Webber. With producer Nigel Wright, who had previously worked with Timmy Malik collaborators Bob Ballerina. So I think you'll agree that even for that last blast of facts alone, it was worth compromising my principles to look at a second song this week. Sorry, Dr. Spin was Andrew Lloyd Webber. I mean, citation needed, because I got that off <laughs> Wikipedia, but I did do some cross-checking, and yes, yes, it appears that was the case. Right. That's, that sounds like a bit of wiki vandalism to me, <laughs> but uh, okay. <laughs> there we are. Check that out, everyone. Tell us if Tell us if we've got that right. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 12.0, approximately 11.1 million viewing households, and 28th overall for the week. The production number was 9F02, and the credited writer is Jeff Martin, who we discussed in episode 19, Dead Webpage Society. The chalkboard gag is, I will not prescribe medicine. Oh, shame. And the couch gag is, the family running outside the animation frame into ominous white space before just about coming back into their world and sitting down. But what happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to the happiest place on Earth, Springfield Elementary School Carnival, where Skinner is putting a Green Beret-style beating on some Disney lawyers in a scene that I'm surprised still exists on Disney+, and that showcases a side of Skinner that I wish we saw more often, but has all been forgotten about to make him a one-note joke of a mama's boy. We see a montage of the questionable entertainment on offer, including Bart's three-card Monty Booth, Willie's Haggis, Otto recklessly endangering the thrill-seekers on the Paralyzer and fleeing to Mexico, and Jimbo's Spook House, where the scares come from just being bullied. But the worst for Lisa is the caricature booth, which convinces her that she is ugly. Moving away from that for a second, it's Tombola time at the carnival, and Homer dreams of a ride on the Duff Blimp. Dropping in at the Super Bowl, where for some reason they know who he is and that he's in the blimp. When Ned wins the shoe buffer, Homer is convinced he's out of luck. But in an inversion of usual events, he wins. The Sheen is taken off his victory a bit by Lisa's self-image struggle. 
plus being called as homely as a mule's butt by his own father. <laughs> At Moe's, he seeks an easy answer and sees a commercial for the Little Miss Springfield pageant, sponsored by Laramie Cigarettes and heartily endorsed by Krusty the Clown, and decides to enter Lisa, selling his treasured blimp ride to Barney for the $200 to fund it. Lisa is initially taken aback at the idea of entering, but when Marge explains the sacrifice that Homer has made, she decides to give it a try, ably abetted by Bart, who for some reason knows all the tricks of the trade, including Vaseline for a friction-free smile. But she's up against stiff competition in Amber Dempsey, who won Pork Princess and Little Miss Kosher in the same week. And with Marge distracted by thoughts of Jack Nicklaus, the whole thing is hanging by a thread. Soon we're at Ye Olde Off-Ramp Inn for the ceremony, starting with a breathless song and dance number and introductions for the competitors. Krusty arrives just in time, not knowing what he's actually presenting, and we get a Miss Pennycandy sighting, before an airing of MacArthur Park on the tabla. Lisa blows the judges away with her talent portion, but can't compete with Amber's eyelashes, finishing runner-up. However, later the family is watching a report on the latest fad, wasting food when the news cuts to a live outside broadcast of the Danish super chain Shup to be opened by Amber who is seriously injured when lightning strikes the little Miss Springfield scepter only the second disaster of the day after Barney crashes the Duff blimp since the runner up becomes the active little Miss Springfield should the winner be incapacitated Lisa is called up to perform Amber's duties she is immortalised at Springfield Wax Museum by being given the body of an existing waxwork, whose head is placed in the Chamber of Horrors. Tom, what three celebrities do we see in said oh, chamber? We see Mr. T. Yes. There's Ronald, Ronald Reagan. There he is. And, oh, well, the, the woman whose body they've used for Lisa, Dr. Someone or other, oh... Uh, no, you have to tell me. I can't remember. It's Dr. Ruth. Dr. Ruth. That's the Yes. One. Do you know, uh, uncharacteristically, I did absolutely no looking into who Dr. Ruth actually is. I, I only know her from this episode of The Simpsons. So, there we go. There we are. <laughs> Lisa enjoys some very dodgy attention at school, nearly sparks a riot as a USO show that was expecting the bigger version of Miss Springfield, and rides on a packet of Laramie cigarettes at a parade. But when she sees Maggie aping the smoking of a cigarette, enough is enough. And little Miss Springfield starts advocating for what she believes in. This includes speaking out about a lack of funding for arts and sciences in education compared to sports, leading to the pummeling of several nerds who rush the pitch of the college football game. Mayor Quimby, the bosses at Laramie, and Krusty the Clown all want her out, and stumble upon a way to do it. As it turns out, Homer made a mistake when filling out the application form. In the part of the form marked, do not write in this space, he wrote, OK. But Lisa reminds him why he entered her for the pageant in the first place, to make her feel better about herself, and tells him it's mission accomplished, even agreeing to remember his gesture the next time he ruins her life, which I believe will be in a mere 16 episodes time during Whacking Day. Well, I can honestly say I heartily endorse this event or product. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a good episode. There's some quick-fire editing at the start with the almost sketch-style uh, montage at the uh, school fate. Uh, and then, yeah, it, it just kind of builds on 
going from strength to strength from there. What do you reckon? Yeah, it's a really good one. One of the things that stuck out with that uh, John Schwarzwelder interview was the use of the word Schwarzweldian, if I'm saying that right. And what I interpret that to mean is a joke or a scene which which is just like surreal and out there, but it really makes you laugh. And there's a lot of scenes like that in this episode. Uh, there's one that you've just mentioned, which is the um, nerds pummeled in the football melee. <laughs> Um, it, it's, it's when Lisa says college football badly diverts funds needed, uh, for education of the arts. And then the nerds go, is that true? Let's get them. The funniest bit for me is the football player then reacting to it and go, let's get out of here. <laughs> it just sort of, it comes from nowhere. It's completely unexpected and it's brilliantly funny. There's other bits like that in this episode, but I'm going to cover them in memeable moments. I, I think my absolute peak in this episode, um, the, the funniest moment for me, is um, Krusty singing the ending song at the Little Miss Springfield pageant. Um, and he gets cut off after four letters. So for, for those of you who, I guess you've all seen it, but just in case you haven't, it's kind of um, L for losers in a wake, I the income she will make, T is for her tooth-filled mouth, T is for her tooth-filled mouth. So they've already run out of material. Um, there is theoretically another four verses of that song afterwards, and the D. Um, and I, I think I've mentioned a couple of times um in the last couple of episodes, they're getting really good at implying a joke that happens off screen that you never see. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that's a really good, uh, a really good example of that. Mm -hmm. um, sorry for singing. But, uh, that's right. But there we go. Character debuts. Amber Dempsey, another actual one shot character, the inveterate pageant winner with the Paraguayan eyelash implants doesn't appear again in the series. So to rescue this section, I'm going to talk about the person who provided Amber's voice, Lona Williams. Lona worked on The Simpsons as a writing assistant and said, I really was only a typist for the show, but by working on the script, I learned how the scripts were put together. I would go to work and type all day and come home and work on my spec scripts for The Simpsons and Roseanne. So very much a means to an end. And she did go on to write Hollywood films uh, like Drop Dead Gorgeous. But... And I assume this was a factor in her getting this particular role. She was previously a competitor in beauty pageants, having been crowned Minnesota's Junior Miss in 1985, a runner-up in America's Junior Miss the same year. So there you go. There's no substitute for experience. Also making a debut appearance is none other than Bob Hope. Leslie Towns Hope was born in London in 1903. I did not know he was British. But there we go. His family, to be fair, emigrated in 1908, uh, eventually settling in Cleveland, Ohio. He was a boxer with a record of three wins and one loss before having his face smashed, not in a belt, but by a falling tree, which necessitated reconstructive surgery. After that, he went into show business full time as a singer, dancer and comedian, mostly on stage until the 30s when he moved into radio and film. He also presented the Academy Awards 19 times between 1939 and 1977. 
His seven Road 2 films with Bing Crosby were very popular, and he was a household name for decades. His last screen work was in a commercial in 1997, and he died aged 100 in 2003. One of the last all-round entertainers that spanned the latter days of vaudeville into the early days of home entertainment. Hope voices himself in this episode, and was 89 at the time. His character will appear several more times in The Simpsons. Twice more that I can definitely confirm. In Season 10, Episode 6, Doin' in the Wind, and Season 17, Episode 14, Bart has two mummies. But as far as I know, he never voiced himself again. In the former episode, he was voiced by Hank Azaria, and in the latter, by Dave Thomas. Are you ready for some Did You Knows? Mm-hmm. Lisa's medley at the pageant includes America the Beautiful and Proud Mary. The former is a patriotic song composed by organist Samuel A. Ward and given lyrics from a poem by Catherine Lee Bates, often used as an alternative to the national anthem at sporting events and such like. And the latter is a song first performed by Creedence Clearwater Revival and written by their singer John Fogerty, released by them in 1969, but arguably better known for a version by Ike and Tina Turner from 1971. Speaking of songs, MacArthur Park is completely berserk. A seven and a half minute epic in four movements, written by Jimmy Webb and eventually performed by Irish actor Richard Harris, perhaps best known for his role in a work I will not discuss due to the attitudes of its author. Harris has said that he is not a singer, so he approached the performance of songs as he would an actor, trying to convey the feelings therein. A stance that William Shatner would lately be unfairly criticised for. I'm sorry, Shatner's albums are great. I will hear no argument on that. This, though, a curate's egg of a pop song, to say the least. But on star power alone, it went number one in Canada and Australia, and a very respectable number two in the Billboard Hot 100, and number four over here on its release in 1968, before doing even better in a disco cover by Donna Summer, which in some edits was over 10 minutes long. That went to number one in the Billboard Hot 100. And as far as I can tell, neither version contains any tabla. A reference here that I find oddly off-colour. When Kent Brockman witnesses the Duff Blimp crash and shouts, Oh, the humanity! It's a reference to the words of Herbert Morrison, a Chicago-based radio host who uttered them as he witnessed the Hindenburg disaster in 1937. The crash is also visually designed to look just like that incident, which killed 36 people. I mean, it was a long time ago and all, but I don't know. It just doesn't sit well with me. The Simpsons will make a further reference to the disaster in Season 7, Episode 15, Bart the Fink, when Bart gets a checkbook that features a flipbook animation of the disaster. And finally, Laramie's mascot, Menthol Moose, is similar but legally distinctive from Old Joe, colloquially known as Joe Camel, the mascot for Camel cigarettes from 1987 to 1997. Camel withdrew him from their campaigns under pressure from Congress, public interest groups, and a lawsuit from attorney Janet Mangini, largely stemming from the observed popularity of the mascot with children, tying in nicely to Lisa's stance at the Laramie Parade. Tom, hit me with some memeable moments. Okay, so I've gone for I've gone for a lot here. I've gone fifteen, but they're not like they're not like Premier League ones. There's no there's no big toasty cinnamon bun or anything like that. But there's some good stuff. So this is more like League One or League Two. 
So first of all, you've got Skinner being a total badass at the top of the episode with his lines, you got next Green Beret mad and copyright expired. Uh, then you got Willie selling haggis. Uh, what does he say? Heart, lungs and liver of a sheep boiled in its own stomach. Tastes as good as it sounds. Could for what ails you. Then you got Homer with his Hey there, Blimpy Boy song. And then at number four, you've got what I would certainly class as Schwarzweldian. Is the advert for the beauty pageant. And the kid and his daughter are going, wee, wee, wee. And then the kid disappears off the top of the screen. And the, and the guy just turns around as if that's completely normal. I actually, I genuinely saw a great one of those today where the, the kid disappears and then um, a greased up willy falls back into shot. <laughs> nice. That, that, that's groundskeeper willy. Nothing. Uh... Oh, God. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> Didn't even notice that. Then <laughs> <laughs> you got Krusty the Clown's stock footage. I heartily endorse this event or product. Uh, that, that's a classic. And then you've got one which is just a synonym for being sad, which is Homer, after he sold his blimp ticket, sat at the table with a pickle going, Hey there, blimp boy, flying through the sky, so fancy free. <laughs> And then, at number seven, we're at the beauty pageant, and the girls are talking about Amber Dempsey. One of them says, eyelash implants. I thought those were illegal. Not in Paraguay. And then you've got number eight, which um, I think has made its way into LGBT culture in some way. I mean, not that I'm an expert on that sort of thing, but it's um, uh, when Bart is demonstrating how to walk in heels, and he says, hey, I'm starting to think I could win. And he sort of puts one hand on his hip and uh, strikes a rather suggestive pose. Uh, that crops up quite a lot. Then at number nine, you got Homer eating petroleum jelly. <laughs> then possibly my favourite question that anyone's been asked ever, do you think the Bill of Rights is a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> uh, then at number 11, you've, again, you've got something that, which is very Schwarzweldian. Ukraine sweeping the nation. Wasting food. And there's a guy just as nonchalantly as you like, just chucking a turkey in the bin, then then pouring away some milk. Just just waste that food, just get rid of it. Yeah, then at number twelve, we already talked about it, the the recreation of the Hindenburg disaster. Oh, the humanity. Then at number thirteen, one I've used myself. Bless you boys. Home of those are ice cream men. I know. I did a similar thing with bin men at the start of the pandemic. You know, it's like we may all be locked in our houses, but the bin men are still coming. They're still emptying the bins. They're taking our they're taking our rubbish away. Good for them. And then number fourteen, the dirt's being pummeled in the football melee. And finally, Kent Brockman announcing that he's going to show you his interview with Pope John Paul II, and it shows the goat being fed by a bottle. Well, that's obviously the wrong footage. <laughs> now, that really is the meme of a thousand uses. It is, yes. How easy is it to put something important and then <laughs> then replace that with a goat being fed? Excellent. Well, that just about wraps it up for Lisa the Beauty Queen. Tom, we're off to Liberia.
We are indeed. Okay, Liberia. It's a country in West Africa on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. To its west is Sierra Leone. To the north is Guinea. And to the east it borders the Ivory Coast, or Côte d'Ivoire, to give it its French name. Liberia is very unusual in that, like a lot of countries in Africa, it was formerly a colony, but not a European one. It was American. Now, indigenous peoples lived in the area that would be known as Liberia for centuries, but the modern history of the country has its roots in a horrible institution that I've talked about many times on the show before, that's slavery in the USA. So, the history of slavery in the USA is much more complicated than some might think. There's this popular idea that slavery was everywhere in the southern states, but Abraham Lincoln showed up, they had the Civil War, then one day, with a click of Lincoln's fingers, all the slaves were free. Funnily enough, it wasn't that simple. So before slavery was abolished, black people were enslaved and taken to the USA in their thousands. Farmers in the southern states wanted them for labour-intensive work, such as harvesting and processing cotton. Now, not every person who was enslaved and taken from Africa remained a slave. Some were freed by compassionate, air quotes, owners. Others bought their freedom, and others were freed by the British in exchange for fighting on their side in the Revolutionary War. In 1790, the number of free blacks in the USA was 60,000, and by 1810, the number had increased to 180,000. So, you know, exponential growth there. And the slave owners saw this as a threat. They thought they would encourage their enslaved compatriots to rebel and desert their owners. On top of this, many free people of colour recognised that the USA was not the land of the free for them. Discrimination against them was rife, and most of the time, it was legal. One person who definitely was a threat was Gabriel Prosser. He was born into slavery in Virginia, trained as a blacksmith, and taught to read and write. In the summer of 1800, he planned a large-scale slave rebellion. Two slaves told their owner, who told the governor of Virginia, one James Monroe. Monroe called out the state militia, and Gabriel was arrested. He was hanged along with his two brothers, as well as 23 other slaves. With this in mind, the American Colonial Society was founded in 1816 by the clergyman Robert Finley. The idea was to set up a colony somewhere in Africa and send free people of colour there. They had support from slaveholders, including the governor of Virginia, James Monroe, who would become president the next year. They were also supported by founding father and former president James Madison, who became the president of the society in the 1830s. Their most well-known supporter, however, was probably Abraham Lincoln. They formed an unlikely alliance with abolitionists, including Quakers. The anti-abolitionists wanted rid of the free people of Gullah, and the abolitionists thought that they would have a better life in Africa, wherever this colony was set up. Funnily enough, the ACS was not popular with the very people it was supposed to be helping. Of course, Africa is not a homogenous mass, it's a huge continent. Someone from, say, Mozambique will have little in common with someone from West Africa. It would be like sending a British person to, say, Kaliningrad and going, it's all Europe, get on with it, you know, European, you're all the same. So, believe it or not, the ACS took inspiration from something Britain was up to. Following the American Revolutionary War, several thousand freed slaves who fought for the British were relocated to Nova Scotia, of all places. So, not only was it freezing cold there, they faced discrimination from the white settlers who were living there. Because of this, 1,200 of them sailed to West Africa in 1792 and founded Freetown, 
the capital of what is now Sierra Leone. Freetown was administered by the Sierra Leone Company, who refused to grant the settlers freehold of the land. To keep the settlers quiet, the company brought in a force of 500 maroons from Jamaica. So you've got a small population there, and they are freed slaves from all over Africa, and a police force, essentially, of 500 people from Jamaica. These are some long journeys as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, in 1807, Britain decided to abolish the slave trade and started to intercept slave ships. Many slaves they took into custody were taken to Sierra Leone for resettlement. They were mostly from West Africa, but they could have come from anywhere, really. They made up a new trading language called Creole, and they came to be known as Creole people. In 1811, the black American shipbuilder Paul Cuff founded the Friendly Society of Sierra Leone, which encouraged black settlers to emigrate. However, Cuff died in 1817 and his project was never realised. The first ship sent by the American Colonisation Society was the Elizabeth, and it carried 86 settlers to what would become known as Liberia. To maintain a permanent colony, they needed land. The region they landed at was controlled by a Gola ruler called Zoluduma, who is known in the West as King Peter, because that's a lot easier. In 1822, he had a meeting with US naval officer Robert F. Stockton. Stockton wanted to buy a strip of land on the coast. According to reports, King Peter agreed to the sale, then tried to back out when he realised that the existence of an American colony for free people of colour would threaten the slave trade. When he tried to renege on the deal, Stockton produced a pistol and put it to King Peter's head. The deal was done. So the first lot of settlers shipwrecked on Sherbro Island, just off the coast of Sierra Leone. They were rescued by a second ship and taken to Cape Mesurado, where they established a colony and called it Christopolis. Nice, nice sort of Greek name there. And the name was changed in 1824 to Monrovia in honour of President James Monroe. Remember, the guy who had Gabriel Prosser hanged when he was governor of Virginia. So... I don't know what's going on there. So the early days of the colony were notable for a very high mortality rate. Records show that 4,571 people emigrated between 1820 and 1843. By 1843, only 1,819 of them were alive, which is just 40%. Of those who perished, the majority of them succumbed to tropical diseases such as malaria. Over the years, the settlers became known as Americo-Liberians, and they quickly became the ruling class. To start with, the colony was administered by the American Colonization Society, but as the colony matured, it was given more self-governance. In 1841, the ACS appointed Joseph Jenkins Roberts as the colony's first governor of African descent. He became the country's first president in 1847 after Liberia declared independence from the USA. They adopted a constitution and their own flag. Now, we always say that flags tell stories, and the flag of Liberia is no exception. At first glance, it looks like the flag of the USA if the USA only had one state. It has 11 red and white stripes rather than 13, with one stripe for each of the signatories of their Declaration of Independence. The single white star on the canton represents Liberia as the first independent republic in Africa. To start off with, there were two political parties in Liberia. There was the imaginatively named Liberian Party, who were popular amongst those from poorer backgrounds, and the true Whig Party, who found support among the wealthy. 
the Liberian Party would later change its name to the Republican Party. In 1878, the Whigs took complete control of the country, and from that point on, Liberia was effectively a one-party state. In 1857, Liberia expanded. Between the British colony of Sierra Leone and Monrovia, the Maryland State Colonization Society, a spin-off of the American Colonization Society, founded a colony of their own. This was known as the Republic of Maryland. It declared its own independence in 1854 and called itself Maryland in Liberia. Soon afterwards, it came under attack from indigenous tribes, including the Gribo and Crew. They weren't in a position to defend themselves and called on neighbouring Liberia for help. Maryland held a referendum and decided unanimously that they wanted to be part of Liberia. The annexation of Maryland brought Liberia into potential conflict with neighbouring colonial powers, as they now shared borders with Sierra Leone, which was British, and Guinea, which was under the control of the French. Liberia's territorial integrity was guaranteed by the US, who maintained a naval presence until 1916. Nothing says don't invade us like a few warships docked at your capital city. Thanks to the USA's military involvement, Liberia survived as an independent nation during the much-fabled Scramble for Africa undertaken by the European colonial powers at the end of the 19th century. Although they never made up more than 5% of the Liberian population, the Americo-Liberians, descended from free people of colour and emancipated slaves, held all of the political power. They used this to oppress the native populations, even enslaving them at times, kind of ironic, they used English as their first language and controlled access to the ocean, technology and education. Over the course of the 19th century, the Liberian government faced a series of revolts from indigenous tribes. All of them were put down with help from the United States military. Liberia remained of strategic importance to the US during the early part of the 20th century. In 1926, the Firestone Company set up the world's largest rubber plantation. This employed over 25,000 people and made Liberia the world's leading exporter of rubber. During World War II, Liberia signed a defensive pact with the USA. America wanted Liberia's rubber and other natural resources such as its iron ore for its war effort. In return, the US built up Liberia's infrastructure, including the Roberts Field Airport, the Freeport of Monrovia, roads to the interior of the country, and the country's first railway. The Americo-Liberians remained in charge until 1980. In 1979, the government planned to raise the price of rice. This was deeply unpopular and led to protests in the capital, Monrovia. The president, William R. Talbot Jr., attempted to use violence to quell the protesters and ordered troops to open fire on them. Seventy people were killed. Riots spread throughout the country, orchestrated by the opposition group, the Progressive Alliance of Liberia. Talbot called for this group to be banned, and eventually Talbot was overthrown in a military coup. The coup was masterminded by a man named Samuel Canyon Doe. In the early hours of April 2nd, 1980, Doe and 16 of his men stormed the executive mansion and killed Talbot and 27 others, including ministers in the upper echelons of a true Whig party, dumping their bodies in a mass grave. Doe then assumed the rank of general and made himself head of the People's Redemption Council. Doe didn't stop with the violence of April 2nd. In the days that followed, he had former government ministers rounded up, paraded around the streets of Monrovia naked, then executed by firing squad on the beach. Later, he suspended the constitution and had more members of the topple government arrested, including the former president's brother, Frank. They were charged with high treason, denied legal representation, 
and Frank Talbot was killed by being thrown out of a plane while en route to his trial. Doe was brutal, but he saw himself as a freedom fighter whose job it was to free Liberia from the tyranny of Americo-Liberians. He stylized himself as Dr. Doe after being awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Seoul in 1982. He was an anti-communist and immediately severed Liberia's ties with the Soviet Union. This, of course, made him popular with the United States, and he had a meeting with the US Defense Secretary, Caspar Weinberger, also in 1982. Doe's rule saw the rise of one Charles Taylor. Now, Charles Taylor was born just outside Monrovia to an indigenous mother and an Americo-Liberian father. In 1977, Taylor received a degree from Bentley University in Massachusetts. He supported the 1980 coup and was appointed to the role of Director General of the General Services Agency. Basically, he was in charge of purchasing for the Liberian government, so he was in charge of a lot of money. In 1983, he was sacked from his position, accused of embezzling over a million dollars in public funds. He managed to flee to the USA, but was arrested in Massachusetts. Liberia attempted to extradite him. While in prison, awaiting his extradition trial in 1985, he escaped after soaring through the bars of a window and lowering himself to the ground on a rope made of bedsheets. He managed to escape to Staten Island, where he pretty much disappeared. In 1983, Doe drafted a new constitution for Liberia and put it to a referendum. This paved the way for a presidential election on October 15, 1985, one that Doe massively rigged. In the run-up to the election, he had 50 opposition politicians murdered, his own hand-picked staff counted the ballots, and he publicly declared that if he lost, he would stage another coup in two weeks. In November 1985, two months before Doe was sworn in as president, his former second-in-command, one Thomas Kwewonkpa, attempted to seize power in a coup of his own. He failed, and his 500 supporters were all killed. Doe responded with oppressive measures against the Geo and Mano people in the north of the country where he perceived the threat of further coups to come from. With the Cold War winding down, the US became unprepared to offer Doe a blank check, and American support for his regime collapsed. In the late 1980s, Charles Taylor resurfaced, this time in Libya, where he had become a protégé of Muammar Gaddafi. He travelled across the Sahara Desert to the Ivory Coast, where he founded the National Patriotic Front of Liberia, the NPFL. In December 1989, Taylor took his forces across the border into Liberia, starting the First Liberian Civil War. He quickly took control of most of the country, including most of the northern regions. It wasn't long before a split emerged in Taylor's forces. One of his senior commanders, Prince Johnson, broke away from Taylor and formed the Independent National Patriotic Front of Liberia, the INPFL. To try and restore order, the Economic Community of West African States, known by the catchy acronym ECOWAS, created a... That's what it is. So ECOWAS created a military force called the Economic Community of West African States Monitoring Group, otherwise known as ECOMOC. Samuel Doe was happy to see this group as they provided 4,000 troops. On September 9, 1990, Doe was invited to ECOMOG headquarters in Monrovia. While there, Johnson's INPFL attacked. They captured Doe and took him back to their base. Now, I don't want to go into details, but while there, he was tortured to death. The torture was filmed and made out to news channels across the world. In one of the more palatable scenes, Johnson can be seen smiling and drinking beer while Doe's ear is cut off. 
With Dow dead, ECOWAS set up an interim government of national unity, headed up by Dr. Amos Sawyer. With the help of a paramilitary police force known as the Black Berets, Sawyer held sway over Monrovia, but the countryside was controlled by the INPFL, remnants of the former government calling themselves the United Liberation Movement of Liberia for Democracy, or ULAMO, and Charles Taylor's NPFL. So basically, the government's only got control of the capital, and everywhere else is ruled by everyone else, essentially. So then, on October 15th, 1992, the same day that Lisa the Beauty Queen first aired, Charles Taylor launched Operation Octopus, his attempt to take Monrovia from the forces of ECOWAS. Although the operation caused a displacement of over 200,000 people and saw thousands killed, it was ultimately unsuccessful, with ECOWAS being able to call in airstrikes from Nigeria. In 1993, ECOWAS brokered a peace agreement in Cotonou, Benin. A UN mission was sent to observe its implementation, but soon left when fighting again broke out in 1994. Various attempts were made to make peace while the fighting continued. In 1996, a peace deal was signed in Abuja, Nigeria, paving the way for elections in 1997. Charles Taylor headed up his own National Patriotic Party and campaigned with the slogan, He killed my ma, he killed my pa, but I will vote for him. It worked, and he won the election with 75% of the vote. Whilst in power, Charles Taylor set about purging his opponents. By 1988, they were pretty much all gone, apart from Roosevelt Johnson, a former ULAMO commander. Johnson took refuge in the US Embassy when Taylor's forces attacked it. As you might expect, the US weren't exactly happy with that, and Johnson fled to Ghana. In 1989, the government of Guinea got involved in the conflict. Remnants of ULAMO reformed in northern Liberia, next to the border. They formed the group Liberians United for Reform and Democracy, or LURD for short. They began their campaign against the Taylor regime in April 1999, sparking the Second Liberian Civil War. Over the next few years, LURD fought their way south until they were on the outskirts of Monrovia. In 2002, a peace group emerged, the Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace. They wore white and held a series of non-violent protests. They even forced Charles Taylor into a meeting where he committed to attend peace talks. In 2003, another rebel group emerged in the east of the country. They were backed by the Ivory Coast and took the name Movement for Democracy in Liberia, or MODEL, as if you needed another acronym. By March 2003, the government controlled only a third of the country. All sides flew to Accra, the capital of Ghana, for peace talks. While there, Taylor was indicted by the UN Special Court for Sierra Leone, who accused him of helping the Revolutionary United Front by selling them guns in exchange for blood diamonds. Technically, this meant that Taylor could be arrested by the Ghanaian authorities, but Taylor threatened to have Ghanaians in Liberia killed if anything happened to him, so he was allowed to return to Monrovia. While Taylor's forces fought on, Monrovia came under siege from Lurd. The writing was on the wall for Taylor, and twice in June 2003, US President George W. Bush declared that he must leave Liberia. Taylor was offered exile in Nigeria, and on August 11th, he resigned the presidency of Liberia, leaving his vice president, Moses Blah, in charge. Following the resignation of Taylor, Blah headed up a transitional government until elections were held in 2005. These were remarkably peaceful given the country's history, and were won by Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. And Sirleaf has quite a remarkable history herself. 
She had served as Minister of Finance in William Talbot's government, but after Samuel Doe had almost all of his cabinet killed, she fled to Washington. She returned to Liberia in 1985 and ran as a running mate of Jackson Doe in the massively rigged general election. She was put in prison twice and again fled to the USA after being released. Following the first Liberian civil war, she ran for president in the 1997 election, winning 25% of the vote. That's the election that Charles Taylor won on the landslide. She was accused of treason and went into exile in the Ivory Coast. Following the conclusion of the Second Civil War, she ran for president in the 2005 election, where she won with 60% of the vote. And with that, Liberia was finally out of the state of war that had existed more or less continually for 25 years. The brutality was particularly notable for two things, child soldiers and cannibalism. Child soldiers were used by all sides, and the cannibalism came from belief among some soldiers that eating your enemies transferred their strength to you. The most infamous cannibal fought on the side of Roosevelt Johnson. His real name was Joshua Milton Blyhe, but he's more commonly known as General Butt Naked. His crimes were utterly horrific, and I really don't want to read them out here, but, but they were so bad that he became the inspiration for a bad guy in the Matt Stone and Trey Parker musical, The Book of Mormon. So I don't, don't, know if you, don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a but there's a general in it who basically goes around terrorising the population, and he's called General But Naked. No, unfortunately, my uh, my attempt to see Book of Mormon has been uh, COVID interrupted, but I believe I should be seeing it later this year. Uh, okay, okay. So with the war pretty much wrapped up, the states put out a two million dollar reward for Taylor's capture and Interpol put him on their most wanted list. But it wasn't until 2006 that Sirleaf, the newly elected president of Liberia, submitted a request to Nigeria for Taylor's extradition. Taylor soon disappeared from the seaside villa he had been exiled to. He was caught trying to cross the Nigerian border into Cameroon. He was then sent to Freetown and placed in the custody of the SCSL. That's a special court for Sierra Leone. Rather than having his trial in Sierra Leone, where it could have been rather dangerous, he was flown to the Netherlands, where he was charged with 11 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity relating to the Sierra Leone Civil War. His trial took over six years to complete, with the verdict being announced on April 26th, 2012. He was convicted of all charges making him the first former head of state to be convicted by an international tribunal since Carl Donuts. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison and is currently serving his sentence at HM Prison Franklin in County Durham, right here in the UK. Any particular reason for that? Well, as part of the deal, the Dutch didn't want to imprison him. But for some reason, and I think this is back when we had a fairly outward-looking government, our government went, yeah, you can stick him in prison here. He'll be a long way from home. We've got the facilities. We want to do something for the world. So, yeah, all right, we'll stick him in jail in County Durham. Ah, different times. Very mm-hmm. different times. So, as for Liberia, the country has remained peaceful and elections have been held every six years. An Ebola outbreak held in 2014, killing around 5,000 people. In 2017... Sirleaf was barred by the Constitution for running for president for a third time, and it was won by probably the most famous Liberian there is. And Gareth, I want to see if you know who this is. So, first off... I, I do know who this is. 
Oh, do you? Yes. Okay. It, it's George Weyer, isn't it? It is. It is. So, former footballer, played for AC Milan, had a spell with Chelsea, played for Man City, won the Ballon d'Or in 1995, the first and only African-born player to have won it. Yep, George Weyer. He came runner-up in the 2005 election, and he's currently the president of Liberia. Now, there's a 90s reference to end on. Excellent. Uh, and, of course, his cousin played for uh, Southampton that time. Oh, yes. <laughs> the cousin who turned out to not be a footballer. <laughs> uh, yes. No, uh, another more 90s way to end that uh, end that tale. Thanks very much, Tom. As usual, I've, I've learned plenty about it. Uh, I'll tell you where you can't learn plenty about Liberia. The Simpsons. I couldn't find one single reference. That's a shame. No reference to Charles Taylor or the country or anything? Not even no. Boy Meets Girl? No, no. no, no. <laughs> That's the first place I should have looked. Um, but but no, no, they're, they're not one of the countries or one of the observing but not um, participating countries in there. So, um, yeah. Uh, if any of our listeners uh, know of a Liberian reference in The Simpsons, you know where to find us. And on that note of abject failure, don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Thank <laughs> you.